Well, good morning. So good to have you here with us this morning at Redemption Gilbert. Uh, my name is Justin Marshall, and uh, so good to be able to, to spend time with you this morning in God's Word. Um, I've been coming here for a long time. It'll be 20 years uh, in 2017. I've been coming since I was in high school, and it's such a blessing to be a part of this body, to, uh, to have all my spiritual formation, God to have saved me in high school ministry here, and been discipled here, and just raised here, and it's good to have my family here, I met my wife here, so my in-laws are still here, all these things, like, a part of being a family is really, really cool, and so uh, it's really great to be here. Um, my wife, Nicole, and I, we've been married uh, almost 14 years, we have seven kids, last time I preached, we only had five, and so it seems like uh, we're adding... Um, too quickly here, and they're not by twins, so I don't think we have some magical gene pool um, or anything like that. Um, it's, it's really cool to be a part of, of Gilbert, and so uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and we'll be in there this morning. What's really cool when you start thinking about uh, life is that God gives us expertise in things. He allows us to find a niche, and I make my way around, and I get to talk to a lot of you, and you have your expertise. Some of you have actual expertise like you went to school for. You're a doctor or a lawyer. You're a teacher. You are really good at your field of study, and God has made you perfectly for that. And then there are some of you who have these manufactured expertise, like barbecue or automotives or the things you think are special to you. Like, I've met Ford guys that's their niche, or Chevy guys. I've never met Dodge people before. Um, or you are watching TV, or you have your thing. Like, this political season has created experts. I guarantee it, all right? You are where you're supposed to be. You hear somebody like Wolf Blitzer, and you're like, you said CNN in church? And uh, you watch Bill O'Reilly, you watch things like The View, or, or if you're like me, every Saturday from September to January, you become an expert in college football, you hear Lee Corso and you're like, dude, it is way closer than the experts think. Or Kirk Herbstreit, these people, you listen to them and you're like, gosh, I know so much more. If I had a direct line to the offensive coordinator of my favorite team, we'd be so much better. And each one of us has something like that. We have these places where we have a niche or an expertise or something that we care about. And I want you to know that God is an expert. And yes, you go, yeah, he's God. But I want you to know that he's an expert in you. God is an absolute expert in who you are. God knows everything about you. God understands you. He gets you. God is an expert. And what's crazy about that is you think you're an expert in you too. And only one side of that has conflicting information, and it comes from us. There's this little thing called being self-aware. And I don't know how many people really have it because what happens is we typically need other people to step in and help us see who we really are. A spouse, a friend, a discipleship leader. We need other people in our life to point those things out. And ultimately, more than those people, we need God. Listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. The word of God is there to open us up and show us who we are and what we truly need 
to live out the power of the kingdom through the gospel. Apart from God doing those things and giving us his word, we're hopelessly lost, wandering about, trying to figure out who we are, and yet God's word clearly describes who we are. So here it is. God knows exactly where you are, where you have been, and what you're thinking right now. So any of those thoughts you've just had about me, God knows them. And you should be ashamed. Before we go to scripture this morning, let's pray. God, we thank you that we can open your word and you can work clearly in us. God, we've seen it time and time again as we walk with you, how you reveal to us who we are and what we need this morning, God. Let this be a time when we have a clear picture of you. We don't walk away confused or or wondering, but use your Holy Spirit to bring about clarity in our minds and our understanding. God, would you calm my heart? God, would you make this about the glory of your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 139 starting in verses one through six. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. You sit there and you listen to that. And there's this incredible sense of either calm or fear for the fact that God knows you. When you read that, you need to understand that what David is saying about God's knowledge of you is that you are fully known. God has searched you and he knows you. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing outside of God's scope of understanding, both past, present, and future. He gets you. There isn't anything that's gone in that he doesn't know about, and there's nothing that's come out that is a surprise to him. God gets you. And there's not another human who understands you the way that God does. There's not another person you could say, we're so close, there's nothing no one knows, and I guarantee that's a lie, because there is no one like our God. There's no one who gets you like our God. David sees these things, and this is a guy who's lived it. He's lived his experience with God, and he's writing from the places that he's been. He's been on the run from Saul, and he's been hiding in places, and God knows that. God knows the fears and the realities of his heart I mean, think about the things that we have studied throughout this summer and the ways in which David talks to God and talks about God. There's this intimacy to him. He's not surprised by our our behavior. He knows all things. You see, God's omniscience is not theological or philosophical for David. It's relational and personal. David isn't living out his life before God and writing all these things because he has these ideas of things. He thinks about God. He writes from key experience of his moments with God. He's writing from a personal point of view. And you look at these personal pronouns and you look for all of the intimate language that David uses about this relationship. And it should give us encouragement about the way that God is intimately involved with you, with me. 
that we are fully known, that God, we don't ever have to wonder about our love for God or God's love for us because he gets us. He understands us all the way. When we are fully known, we can live free because he has searched us. When we are fully known, we can live free because he has searched us. When David says, you have searched me and you have known me, this is an intimate looking into our soul, into our character, into who we are. God has invested in you. He has deeply searched for something. It's not like when I ask my children to go into the other room and find something and they walk in, they go, nope, not there. This is, this is intense. I don't know if you guys have the same love for your remote control as I do because it is a very powerful thing. It wields lots of authority. And early on when our oldest was like three, I taught her how to use that. One, because th- this is important life stuff. Like this is good dad stuff to lean into and teach your children. And two, it made Saturday mornings much more restful because you leave out a bowl of cereal. She knows how to use the remote. I sleep much longer. (laughs) But as we've gotten more children and all those things happen, the remote has less value to everyone else as much as it does to dad. And when that remote goes lost, it is a complete upheaval. All right, it is couch cushions, it is chairs, it is drawers. It is anywhere possible that a tiny little three-year-old could put it, and I am going after this thing. I mean, you lose the can opener and a hammer and a screwdriver, you're still having baked beans, but if you don't have the remote, I mean, stuff is real. You have to get up and walk over there, and it's much more complicated than when I was a kid. You just turned a knob. This is the way that God looks at you like the woman in Luke 15 who has lost the coin and will do whatever it takes to know and find something. He is intentionally searching you because he loves you. He has you in his care and you are prized to him. It is an intense going after you. God loves you and cares about you to the deepest of your core. David says that he knows me. Not just some things, all things. He understands me. He comprehends my coming and going. I mean, think about the things you desire most in a relationship with a friend or in a dating relationship or with a spouse. You would wish somebody knew you, understood you, and comprehended you. Everything you ever wanted in a relationship, God is. Every time you look at that person you care about and you just go, man, I just wish all these things, God is that already. And in humility, you can continue to love that person because they were never meant to be God for you because God already was. He is familiar with all of your ways and David basically saying, I can't get away with anything. You know it. You know my words before they're on my tongue. You understand my heart. We understand that from the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. God gets that. He gets all of it. This is not unfamiliar to him. He understands these things. God knows so much about us, our days and even the hairs that are on our head or lack thereof. As I can see, I have fellow brethren. (laughs) Being fully known by God means that you're protected, that you are cared for, that he has you. Listen to what David says. In verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Not only does God know you, 
but he has shaped exactly where you're supposed to be. And when you go there, he's got you. It's almost this picture of a city in that time being besieged by a rival or an enemy. And they cover it all the way around so that no one is getting out. God is saying, I have you. And I'm placing my hand upon you so that exactly what you're supposed to be done will be done. That's a level of intense knowing and protection. Think about this idea that God is actively saving you unto life. We talk all the time about the power of the cross and the gospel and the reality of Jesus making us what we, what we were never, what we once were into something new and changing us through that reality. But right now in this room, God is actively saving you unto life. That every breath that you are supposed to have until he takes you home, he is saving you too by hemming you and by placing a hand of protection. You are fully known by the God of the universe. The, by the one who spoke this whole thing into existence that should bring about a sense of calm even in the midst of the life that we live with the consequences of sin and the things that we do, God still cares about you. There isn't anything that he saw you do that made him love you less and there wasn't anything that you ever did that made him love you more. He loves you because you are his. I mean, think about it. All these things that David's been through in his own life and the consequences he's faced because of the mistakes he's made to choose his way over God's way, and yet here he is saying, you've searched me and you know me. You're protecting me. You are holding me. And then he has this moment where his mind is blown and he says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Imagine if David, he's writing all these things and he's experienced all these things about God. Imagine if he sat under the teachings of Jesus, what would he say? Imagine if he understood the power of the gospel like Paul says in Romans 1.16. Think about what his mind would be doing in that moment. And yet here we are, New Testament Christians sitting with the word of God and the teachings of Jesus. Do we act like our mind is blown by who God is and how great he is? When was the last time you had that moment? When you just sat down with the word of God, and you sat there with your father and asked him to pour over you. Or you're in a worship service and you just couldn't contain your absolute love for your savior. Or you're out and you saw God use somebody to serve another person and you were overwhelmed by seeing the gospel lived out. I mean, David is overwhelmed by what he knows about God. Yeah, David is emotional. David writes from deep down. But why shouldn't we live emotional about what we know about God and about what we experience about God and the way that we are fully known by him? Let's, let's look at verses 8 or 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
the night as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. We are never alone. Our God is with us, no matter our thoughts, no matter where we feel weak in that moment, our God is with us. He's omnipresent. That is not this moment of thinking that God is in everything. That would be pantheism. This is believing and knowing that God is everywhere. Look what David describes. There isn't a picture he tries to paint where God isn't there. He's every single place. The ocean, the mountains, east, west. It doesn't matter. God exists in that space and he is with his people. We are never alone. We don't ever have to live in fear of loneliness. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Darkness won't even help either. There's nothing that stops God's vision. I mean, think about the capacity of that. Think about what that means in reality of our life. I think sometimes we live as though God's not everywhere. Yes, we mentally will make an ascent. Yes, God is everywhere, but we don't live like he's everywhere. We believe that we can hide these things from God, that he doesn't see all of our actions or all of our thoughts when it's clearly stated by David in the beginning of this passage that he does know those things. So why do we believe the lie that we can just do whatever we want and God won't notice? When I ask my kids to clean my, their room, I know what I'm going to get. If I don't go in there and help them, I know I'm going to get an illusion of a clean room, right? I can go in there and I'll begin to look around and I guarantee if I look in the corners of the closet, I'm going to find everything that used to be on the floor. If I go in and help them organize it, we're going to be fine. But if I say, you guys, this is what you're supposed to do, it's in the darkness of the corners of those closets that everything is hidden. And I think sometimes we live that way within our own heart before God. Yeah, God sees me. Yes, God knows me. But if I can just keep these things a little bit out of the way, throw a little blanket over it, stuff it in the corner of my heart, God's not really going to deal with it. And that is not okay. You're just lying to yourself. And yet God knows you. He wants you to experience the freedom of confession, of not carrying the weight of your sin always before you because he already knows The New Testament talks about us confessing our sins to one another. There's nothing you can hide from God. He gets it. Because you are fully known and you're never alone. You may be sitting here this morning and you feel alone. There's a study done in 2013 that 40% of people who took this survey said they felt alone. Which is up from 20% in the 80s. What's interesting about that is we've tried as a society, as people, to create all sorts of ways to not have to feel alone through social media, through communities, through whatever, and yet people are sitting alone. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, and there are significant reasons. People experience loss, the death of a loved one, or a job, or friendships, or uh, change of environment, or having to move. And yes, all of those moments are loneliness, but for the believer... You're not alone. You never have to once walk in loneliness. 
God has you. He keeps you. He walks beside you. He brings about comfort and peace. Deuteronomy 31.6, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, I will be with you till the end of the age. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will finish it. Josh, John chapter 14, he will not leave you as orphans. And in those moments when we feel lonely, typically what we want to do is turn insulary or look at the world around us and go, why can't you care about me? When the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above, not on things below. You want to find the emptiness go away, you turn to Jesus because he will never leave you alone. He walks with you and he cares about you. He knows you intimately. Everything that you've ever wanted, God has provided in himself. Let's look at verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I mean, we could stop and say amen and walk out of here completely satisfied in who God is and what he has done for us. I mean, you read that and you don't ever have to wonder what God thinks of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He took the time to make you exactly who he wanted you to be. And what we believe without the shadow of a doubt is that our God doesn't make mistakes. Our God does not make mistakes who he formed you to be. He saw them. He understood your fragileness, that at conception you were a life and that he loved you. God cares about us intimately in the way that he put us together. When it says our inmost parts, literally down to our kidneys, God put us together. I mean, David is absolutely freaking out about how awesome God is and what he does in creating life, individual life. What he does in making people for a purpose and knowing that their days are planned before them. That he knows exactly who he wants us to be and the purposes that he has for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe about this God. I want you to know that he loves you. And that his purpose was for you to be here this morning to hear this. And you're here to hear the truth and the reality of who God is. I love the illustration of knitting. I'm going to be honest, and you might not believe this, but I don't know how to knit. Never watched a YouTube video on how to knit. I've seen people from afar knit, and it looks cool, I guess. But what I've seen is you take some sticks and some, some string, and you do this, and out pops a sweater. And that, to me, is like, yeah, we're doing something. Like, David is taking this illustration of someone knitting something because of the hands-on project that knitting is. My guess is, if you were going to make a sweater, you'd plan to make a sweater. You wouldn't hope a sweater would happen. You'd go to the store, and you'd choose the appropriate uh, yarn or whatever you pick. 
Okay, I'm assuming it's not um, rope. I'm assuming it's something different. And you go and you go, this is the color, this is the, the yarn I have for the purpose of making a sweater. And you sit down and you take your sticks or needles or things and you begin to move them in and out into a fashion so that they become something, not just a mess. When God sat down to make you, he had purpose. He had a desire for what you would be and he looked at you and he loved you in that moment and said, this is mine. He knew if you would be a sock or a sweater or a beanie. He knew exactly what you would be used for and it was for his purpose. That should overwhelm you. I, I don't know about you, but that just blows me away that God knew exactly what my purpose would be. He knows exactly where I'll be in five years and how he'll use me. He knows exactly the type of tragedy he might bring or the suffering that might come and what that will do to shape my character for my ultimate good and his glory. He goes before us. He put you together. I mean, that is unbelievable. One author describes it almost as embroidery, and that's like a whole nother level of intricacy. I mean, get your readers, because it's like this. That's what God does when he puts us together. One author says this, once more, omniscience and om omnipresence and omnipotence come together, working hand in hand. God saw me at the moment of conception as an unformed substance. Even when I wasn't much, I was still something to him. In fact, he pre-recorded and set out in advance all my days. God wrote all the details of my life in his book, and he fashioned and formed all the days of my life when none of them yet existed. Both in terms of length of life and the specifics of life, God has his purposes and his plans. God knows exactly what he wants to do with you. Why are you fighting him? Why are you fighting the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Why are you fighting the places that God wants to take you and what he wants to do with you? You know the things that he shed upon you to do. God made you for that and desires to use you for that. In God's eyes, he clearly shows us that life matters. If life didn't matter, why would he want to know us? Why would he want to walk with us? Why would he want to form us? I saw these two phrases as I was studying, and I, they caught my attention because sometimes as believers, we need to be reminded by little catchphrases. Here they are. Creation is wonderful because the creator is wonderful, not the other way around. Creation is wonderful because the creator is wonderful, not the other way around. And this, it's not who I am that makes me wonderful, but the one who made me. It's not who I am that makes me wonderful, but the one who made me. We shouldn't live so arrogant to think so highly of ourselves, but to think so highly of the one who made us for his purposes. You look at this stuff and you see how hands-on God is, that we're handmade. I mean, it's such a buzzword in our, our culture right now. Everybody wants something handmade, a handcrafted pour-over. If you know what that is, you're pretty hipster. <laughs> Most of you would appreciate a hand-spun shake instead of one from McDonald's or a handcrafted bag, and we're willing to pay whatever for handmade. I'm serious. Like, you go on Etsy and it's like, Really? 
But the reality is, is God has been making handmade things from the beginning and we don't look at them the same way we do the stuff everybody else makes. That in God's economy, his handmade objects, us, in the life that we lead, they matter. And so for people who are fully known and for people who are never alone and people who are wonderfully made, our desire should be to be attached to a life ministry. Where will you find yourself attached to somebody else's life? Where will you look for places to connect to others instead of only yourselves? And I say this to, my, to me as well. Where will you find yourself attached? How will you invest in the lives that God has created? How will you take Paul's charge and sign up for Sunday school to care for these little people, the next generation of our church? Where might you find yourself discipling students on a Wednesday night and seeing what God can do in the life of a teenager, joining 710 and mentoring and caring for 20-somethings? Or an RC where you can be in community and not living on an island by yourself? How will you involve yourself in immigration or the lives of refugees or homeless ministry? How will you look for the vulnerable like those who are in foster care and adoption? How might you see yourself going to a nursing home and begin loving elder care because nobody else will? How will you attach yourself to life and invest in what God cares about most? Because if this is what he cares about most, it's exactly why he sent his son Jesus. How will you find your place to be humble enough to serve outside of yourself? I think exactly where David wants to take us at the end of this chapter because we are fully known, because we are never alone, because we are wonderfully made, we can be humble in response to who God is. You might have already read ahead, and God knows if you did, instead of staying with us, but here's what David says. <laughs> Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay, David. You just took us on this incredible journey of developing this picture of how well God knows us and, and that we are never alone and how intricately you've woven us. And now you're going to, what are you doing? I think David understands how incredible God is. I think David understands that God will not be mocked. And in his mind and in this moment, he sees all that God has done and he wants anyone who would deter that to go away. He wants anyone who would get in the way of God's glory to be removed so that God alone stands where he should and that those who follow him give him everything that he deserves. Our God is good God, a just God, a righteous God. Nothing is beyond his knowledge, presence, or power. He is indeed a omnicompetent God. Here we see his competency applied to the moral order of things. David notes in stark contrast the heart and mind of those who oppose God and are his enemies with those who seek God and are his children. This is a psalm that vividly calls on God to judge the wicked who do great evil. David asks God to slay the wicked and then at the same time, if you look at verse 23, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Some versions say wicked and lead me in the way of everlasting. I think David recognizes that at times we all live as enemies of God and the decisions and the choices that we make. And yet at the end of the day, he says, God, please do again what you've always done. God, search me. God, I don't, I don't ever want to be in a relationship where there's a barrier between us because of something I've done or something that I've let in or something that I'm harboring towards another. God, search me and see if there's any wickedness, any grievous thing in me. And I think that's a prayer of humility because when God will come in and he rearranging the furniture in your life, it can get messy because we are undoing years and years of selfishness, years and years of pride, but there is no better place to be than to be humbly on your face before the one who intimately knows you and has your best in mind. And I dare us as a church to pray that. God, will you search me and know me, see in me, God, and root it out because if I live this way, I know what's coming. God, I want to live in the way of everlasting. And as New Testament believers, we understand the reality of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the way in which we could never come to the Father except through him. It's shed blood that atones for us and covers us. It gives us newness of life. It took a heart of stone and made a heart of flesh. He made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are heirs to the kingdom. And in that daily, we walk in the way of everlasting. But it takes the moment to wake up and say, God, this is your day. Because I'm fully known. Because I'm never alone. Because I'm wonderfully made in God today. I want my response to be humility. Let's pray together. God, take your word and shape us. God, root out selfishness, evilness, wickedness, any grievous way in us, God, that we would be able to live humbly before you because of what you have done to radically make us new. God, we declare that you were incredible for the way that you handcrafted us to be exactly what you wanted us to be. We thank you for Jesus who gives us new life. God, would we live in that? God, we live out of a life that is blown away by your goodness to us and the way that you think about us. We give it to you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.